One of the things that the church has been doing since the very beginning as it gathered together is this practice of communion, which as Pat said, we are zooming in on today. We're focusing on communion. And one of the features of this church here as a church of Christ, which is the movement that we are affiliated with, is that we practice communion, we hold communion every week, every uh, service. And it's been something that's central to Christian community since the very beginning, to the point where even some church uh, denominations and traditions list it on a, a, a list of criteria for what is actually a, a true church, is the appropriate uh, administration and practice of what we are talking about today. And so we practice it here every week. And in my family, we have a, a tradition that we started called Friday night pizza night. And uh, on a Friday afternoon, we'll start making the dough, and then uh, it sounds very difficult, but the, uh, the machine needs it all for us, so it's, it's pretty easy. Uh, and then we let it rise in the afternoon, and then uh, we make it together as a family. We gather in the kitchen and we, we make it together. And we've got a two-year-old and a five-year-old, so as you can imagine, probably more of the toppings end up in the mouth than actually on the, the pizza. Uh, but after we've cooked those, then we sit down and we watch a movie. And we're in a very wonderful time in, in history where so many different movies are just at our fingertips, whether it's Netflix, Stan, you know, Amazon Prime, whatever it might be. It's just an incredible selection at our fingertips of anything that you could possibly want to watch. And so we say to the kids, we can choose anything, anything you like, we can watch, uh, you know, what, what do you want? And so naturally we watched Frozen about eight weeks in a row. <laughs> and I think I could probably quote that movie uh, verbatim. But there comes a moment or a few moments as, as a parent where you realize that you've made a mistake. And sometimes it takes you a long time to figure that out and sometimes you know it immediately. And uh, a little while ago, our daughter said to us, Mom, Dad, I don't like pizza anymore. And we knew immediately that we had made a big mistake because we had lost the power of parenting through pizza. <laughs> and uh, because we had done it so often, they had gotten sick of you know, the way that we made it or the, or the taste or, or whatever it might be. And so we're in this, in this position where uh, not only do we have to come up with a way to freshen up our weekly practice of family time on a, on a Friday night, but we also have to come up with a new parenting strategy, uh, which we haven't yet figured out. But one of the things about doing communion every week is that it's, it's meant to uh, shift its importance. It's meant to show actually how important it is for us as a community, but the effect can often be the opposite that because we do it every week, it ends up losing a bit of its significance. Now, I don't think that necessarily that has been happening uh, at our church. I think that there's nothing wrong or, or incorrect or, or you know, unholy about the way that we do it, but it's been on my mind for about four months or so to, to, to kind of re-centralize our focus on communion. And every so often, things just need a reset. I'm confident that my children will like pizza again one day, uh, once we've sorted that out. And so today we are going to be zooming in on communion and giving a bit of a focus as a way of kind of resetting our approach, rediscovering the significance of what it can be. And so as I've been thinking and praying and, and studying over the last uh, little while, we've, we've come up with some strategies that we are going to implement as a church, which I'm really excited about um, to be able to enhance how we do communion. But I've also realized that Jesus really instituted the perfect practice 
because there are so many different uh, shades of, of meaning and emphasis that can be brought out that you know, every time we celebrate this thing together, uh, it can be done in a way that reminds us uh, in, in, a, in a new and, and positive and encouraging way about Jesus' sacrifice and what he's done. And so today we'll be looking at uh, resetting our, our approach and, and understanding the, the how and the why, as Pat has been alluding to. Now, before we get started, I need to just acknowledge that there are a lot of different backgrounds and traditions represented here this morning, which means that there are just as many views about what communion is and just as many uh, you know, catalogues of experiences about how communion should be performed. And what we see in the churches these days is that there is a lot of variation in how it's done and varying levels of strictness about how it should be observed. And some places will uh, say that unless it's done their particular way, then it doesn't count. It doesn't actually do anything at all. So I need to acknowledge that there is a very broad uh, experience here in the room about what communion is. And there are also theological implications of the various ways that it's practiced. Um, and so we're not going to get a chance to, to go deep into the theology of it today because uh, you know, I, I ran into Pat's office at some point this week and basically just commiserated and said, Pat, I'm going crazy, there's too much. So we would need you know, a solid, probably a number of lectures to, to get through it all, which is not the right mode for this morning. So we're not going to be diving into the theology of all of these things, but if you do come with questions, if you leave today with more questions about uh, how it's done or what it means or why it's done that way, then I just want to invite you to uh, reach out and to, to send an email. I would love to uh, you know, correspond with you and, and answer your questions or sit down over a coffee and, and um, talk theology and uh, get a bit nerdy. Um, I appreciate those things. Um, but we won't be getting into it uh, too much this morning. We're going to be looking at the, the practice from a, a biblical perspective because it comes out of the New Testament. Okay? Jesus instructed us to do this thing, and so we see it practiced in uh, the New Testament. And we need to understand that communion, the way that we see it at the moment and the way that we understand it is just as much a result of historical process as it is uh, an interpretation of what's come out of Scripture. And so this morning we're going to be zooming in on where it came from in Scripture as a way of understanding and restoring that meaning and that significance to it. And so uh, one final thing before we get started properly is that it's possible that you're someone here who is not familiar with the church environment. You're not grown up with this sort of custom or practice, and your opinion of, of this thing is that it you know, looks like some religious ritual that you're just not really interested in. And so what is today going to have for you? Is this gonna be relevant to you at all? And so I need to start by saying that the communion table, the Lord's table, could not be more relevant to your life. Because Jesus said that unless anyone drinks my blood and eats my flesh, then he has no life in him. And that was a very difficult saying that he made, and a lot of his followers actually left him at that point because they didn't understand what he meant by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. But Jesus there is talking about life. He's talking about life and death, which applies to all of us. Jesus said those words, not just to the crowd that had gathered there, but to every single person in this room, that unless we partake of Jesus' flesh and blood through this uh, remembrance here, then we have no life in us. So it is absolutely relevant, no matter what uh, background or, or context or understanding you are coming from. So let's go from the beginning. 
All of the Gospels record the moment that Jesus instructs his disciples about this practice. Uh, but we're going to zoom in on Luke's Gospel because it has some more useful details. So it's in Luke chapter 22. You're welcome to open it in your own Bibles or to read uh, from the screen as well. Luke chapter 22, uh, verses 14 to 20. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. So Jesus at this moment is actually celebrating with his disciples a Jewish meal called the Passover, which was something that was commanded for them to celebrate every 12 months at the same time of year to follow this, this meal, which was actually, I mean, kind of a, a ritual, kind of a, just a remembrance. It was a meal together, and it was very laid out. There were uh, 15 steps in this meal. If you can call it a 15-course meal if you're feeling that hungry. Uh, but each of those steps was meant to correspond to signify a piece of Israel's history and a part of God's character, what God had done to actually deliver them from slavery in Egypt. So at one point in their history, Israel was a, a, a nation enslaved in the land of Egypt, and they cried out to God, and then eventually God raised up Moses, who uh, was commanded to take them out of Egypt, and they did that through, uh, God did that through a bunch of incredible signs and wonders, these plagues that came upon Egypt, and the last and final and worst of these plagues was the death of the firstborn son, where God said that he was going to go and put to death all of the firstborn in Egypt, and that might seem pretty harsh, but in actual uh, fact, it's, it's justice because at 40 years prior to that, Pharaoh had decreed that every single firstborn male of Israel should be put to death. And so God instructed that Moses needed to tell the people of Israel that the angel of the Lord was going to come and to execute God's judgment on the land of Egypt. And in order for them to be safe, what they needed to do was to take a lamb, to sacrifice that lamb and to paint the blood of that lamb on the doorposts of their house. And as the angel of the Lord swept through the land of Egypt, should he come across a door that had the blood over it, he would pass over that house and the people inside would be safe. And so Jesus is intentionally using this moment in Jewish remembrance and in that celebration because each of those elements that he holds in his hand, the bread and the cup, already have symbolic significance already have meaning to the people of Israel who were partaking of that meal. And the bread itself symbolizes the Passover lamb. So what Jesus was saying when he picked up the bread and he said, this is my body which is broken for you, he's telling them that I am the Passover lamb. And as we see in the book of Revelation, we, we, it says that Jesus was the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And so it has always been God's plan to lead him to that moment where he would be offering himself as a sacrifice. 
And the cup has many different meanings in Jewish understanding, but it's very clear what Jesus is saying here, that it's a symbolic of blood. And blood, in one sense, signifies life. If you have blood running through your body, you are alive. And in the other sense, shed blood symbolizes death. And so Jesus' emphasis here, as he takes these elements, is on life and death. It is on a sacrifice of death offered on behalf of somebody else in order to bring life. That is Jesus' emphasis. And that happens to be at the very heart of what the gospel message is. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says to the Corinthian church that I would remind you of the gospel that I preached to you in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the truth that I preached to you. For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And so Paul emphasizes to the Corinthian church that the very starting point, the very foundation of this gospel message is that Jesus died, that that was for sins, that that was in accordance with God's plan from the very beginning, that he was raised from the dead and that that was confirmed through the proof of appearing to people. And so these historical facts that Paul is telling them is the very foundation is not just the start of Christianity. It's not just the doorway through which we enter into relationship with God. It is actually the foundation of all Christian belief, of every doctrine, of every teaching, of every understanding, of every practice. The foundation of that is the moment of the cross. You see, Christianity is not a worldview. Christianity is not a set of rules to be followed or, or a club to belong to that you attend on a Sunday and you pay some membership fee. Christianity is not a framework to understand and respond to certain philosophical and moral questions. Christianity is not a religion peddling its wares in the marketplace of relative truth. Christianity is a proclamation, a standing upon the historical fact of Jesus' death 2,000 years ago and of the spiritual implications of both that death and his resurrection. John Stott said in his wonderful book, The Cross of Christ, it was by his death that Jesus wished above all else to be remembered. There is then, it is safe to say, no Christianity without the cross. If the cross is not central to our religion, ours is not the religion of Jesus. And you see, there are a number of world-changing moments in history where they claim that the world was permanently altered. From before that, it was one way, and after it, it was another from when Caesar crossed the Rubicon, to the, the Black Plague in the Middle Ages, to the sinking of the Titanic, to the World Wars, the destruction of the Twin Towers. All of these moments claim to have permanently altered the way that humans behave, but there is only one moment by which all of history is measured, that it either became, it came before or it came after this moment, and that was the moment that Jesus lived and died on this earth, that he accomplished his mission of living a perfect, sinless life, that he died on the cross to achieve our forgiveness, and that he rose from the dead, and that he, he went from there to heaven where he was able to send his spirit to be with us. And so when you open your phone screen and it says the numbers 2023, that is a reminder that 2,000 years ago, Jesus accomplished his mission of purchasing forgiveness 
for us. And it is a reminder that we are 2,000 years into the mission of the church to share that message with the world through our witness of Christ. If the cross is not central in our lives, we misunderstand Christianity altogether. And if the cross is not central in our church, we are no church at all. We can't call ourselves a church of Christ. I mean, it's fortuitous that we are associated with a movement that says that, but what I mean is that you cannot associate the word Christ to our church if we are not built upon the cross and what it means. The symbol of Christianity was not chosen to be anything else. It was not a dove to represent the Holy Spirit. It was not an empty tomb to represent uh, life and and Jesus' uh, resurrection from the dead. It wasn't a a tree or a star or some other thing of of nature and creation to show God's lordship and sovereignty over uh, all of that, although all of those things are true. What was chosen was a cross, a symbol of the one moment in history that has made more difference than anything else. And so what did the cross achieve? The cross achieved reconciliation and unity. It achieved our reconciliation with God. Not just our reconciliation with God, but also our reconciliation with each other. We know that as the cross, uh, as the effect of the cross is that our sins were paid for by Jesus' blood. That you and I no longer stand guilty and in condemnation before God, but actually we are given freedom. And that that is a gift of grace. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to earn it. And even after you've received it, you don't have to earn it. The people who have found the secret to Christianity have, have found grace, have understood that my life moving forward is it's not about me earning God's favor. It's not about me doing things in order to become right with God. It's about me living from thankfulness and fruitfulness and the power of the Holy Spirit, which lives within me. So we've been reconciled to God. That's happened. It's done. Romans chapter five explains it beautifully when it says that when we were weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For someone would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore now we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, or we are reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more shall we be saved by him through his life. Much, uh, even more than that, we rejoice in God through his, through his son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received this reconciliation. Incredible, incredible statement. So we have been reconciled with God, but it also means that we have been reconciled with each other. Because sin didn't just affect how we were as individuals, it affected how we were together as a community, as as human beings, as people made in the image of God. And one of the effects of God's uh, purchase of us on the cross is that we are actually brought together into a body, unified. And uh, early on in the book of Acts, we've been going through Acts in the evening service, and I would encourage you, it's it's been a a great time walking through that uh, narrative. And early in the book of Acts, uh, we get in chapter two, this explanation of a moment uh, where the believers come together. And one of the characteristics of this early community is that they have just this incredible unity about them. They were from all different places. Some of them spoke different languages. They had theological disagreements. They had lots of reasons not to hang out with each other. And yet we see that every description of this community is that they are uncharacteristically unified. 
So we are reconciled to each other. And Acts 2.42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now that phrase, breaking of bread, is something that uh, before Christianity, pre-Christianity, in, in uh, just general usage, meant basically sharing a meal. Sharing a meal together. That's what breaking bread was. It was a, an idiomatic way of saying, oh, I had lunch with so-and-so. Oh, we broke bread together. There was more implication than that, of course, because in the ancient world, if you were to share a meal with somebody, it was a social statement that you accepted this person, that you, uh, they were your friend, that they were welcome in your house, and that as they were there, they were covered by you know, whatever social standing that you had. And so eating with people, having a fellowship meal was a significant statement. But what does it mean for them to be devoted to the breaking of bread? Were they gluttons? No. Because the breaking of bread after the book of Acts becomes a, a way of talking about communion. It becomes a way of them talking about the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. And in fact, the only biblical terms used for this practice, communion is, is uh, something that we've called it later, uh, but the words are breaking of bread and the Lord's Supper, which Paul mentions uh, later in, in 1 Corinthians. So what does it mean that they were devoting themselves to uh, the breaking of bread? Well, it tells us that the primary way that they, they celebrated this thing, communion, was that it was a fellowship meal. They were gathered together. And probably as they did that, they would have done it very often. And then each time, they would have probably uh, had some form of bread and, and wine, uh, some form of drink, and they would have remembered that these elements correspond, signify uh, the sacrifice of Jesus. And so the, the primary tangible meaning in that moment was actually their own unity as a group of people. That was the primary tangible meaning of the Lord's table, that, hey, you know, we had lots of reasons to be disagreeing with each other, but now we're together. Now we're unified. The blood of Jesus has broken down any dividing wall between us, and we are one in the body of Christ. There are very few sort of detailed explanations of this practice in the New Testament, but we find one in uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And as is the case often with, if you've received a letter from Paul, normally you're doing something a bit wrong. So he's correcting their practice of the Lord's table. And so this gives us some useful information as to what is right about it, uh, based on understanding what was wrong about the way that the Corinthians were practicing it. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, uh, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You, th you think you're eating it, but no, it's not. And let me tell you why. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. See, therefore, you know, it confirms that the early practice of this Lord's Supper was a fellowship meal together, which they were meant to you know, respect each other and honor the unity that had been purchased by Jesus' blood. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And it goes on. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
And so these all confirm the idea that it's a fellowship meal and that the primary tangible meaning is this unity together as a group of people because they are criticized for disrupting the meal by being selfish and greedy, by not being mindful of the people around them. And I think that that passage goes on to say, whoever therefore uh, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine themselves then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on themselves. And there are so many theological questions and implications that come from those statements and those are ones that I'm happy to discuss uh, in, in, a, in a conversation. But the context of this passage, I hope you can see, is that being mindful of the body is about understanding what this body is. Because it's only in the very next uh, chapter in Corinthians that Paul brings out this analogy of the church as the body of Christ. He starts talking about spiritual gifts and how they've been given to each member individually and that together they form the body. So for anyone who uh, does not discern the body, is not mindful of the body of Christ, is eating and drinking judgment on themselves. And that's the context of what it means to, to eat and drink in an unworthy manner. And so if unity is one of the primary tangible meanings of this, I don't, I don't actually believe that it's the only meaning, by the way, and this, this is uh, one of the things about communion that is, in my mind, just really perfect in, in what God has instructed us to do, because it goes, you know, everything shoots off. You can, you can bring everything back to communion and what it means. But what does unity look like here? What does unity look like in this place, under this roof, in this house, in this house of God? Well, Churches of Christ was actually start, uh, started in a context uh, which was reacting to a particular practice of communion, which was the practice of communion tokens. And so in that time, if you were to want to take communion, then you had to have a, an, an exam, some kind of interview and examination by the elders of the church. And if they were satisfied that you had you know, passed the test, that you knew enough or that you could demonstrate your faith, and if, of course you had to be baptized as well, then they would give you a token. And if you wanted to take communion, you would have to come up during the service and you would have to present your token as a sign that you are a legitimate person to receive communion. And then you would, you would be allowed. And so it actually became a bit of a socially exclusive thing. And so the, the, the people who started Churches of Christ as a movement said, we don't think that's right. We don't think this is an exclusive practice. It's called the Lord's Table and his invitation is open to everyone. So we're gonna go and have church over there and we're gonna have communion and you're all welcome. And that's one of the reasons that Churches of Christ started. It's one of the reasons also that the very few things that actually require we require to be a church of Christ is that we celebrate communion every week. And so we practice what is called an open table, which means that you don't have to be a member of this church. You don't have to even go to this church. You can be from any denominational background, from any place or, or whatever it might be, and you are welcome to come and receive these elements so long as you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place and that his blood applies to you. You are welcome here. And we are the same. We are unified in the body of Christ. What else is happening when we take communion? It's, it's, it's an experience of unity. It's a remembrance of the reconciliation that has occurred. 
But also in, in that passage in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what does it mean to proclaim his death? Well, the first thing is that a proclamation of his death is a proclamation of his death both physically and historically. That the practice of communion is a statement that Jesus had a physical body, that he was a historical person, and that he died really, really and physically. They were real wounds, it was real pain, it was real wood and real nails and real thorns pressed into his head. It wasn't some metaphor, it wasn't some myth invented by people in the, in the Middle Ages or whatever other really uh, unprovable theory. It is a proclamation of a historical fact that this actually happened. And by the way, the, the way that the, the Catholic Church practices this, uh, you know, I believe is, is, helps us to be really mindful of the fact that this is a physical body. And there's a, there's a reverence there that these elements actually correspond to the body of Jesus. And we should certainly be remembering that that is the case. That as we hold them in our hands, we know that there was a physical body, that Jesus experienced that physical pain and that that was on our behalf. And so it is a proclamation. You, you, you cannot believe that Jesus' death was some myth or, or metaphor. To be a Christian, you need to believe that that actually happened. Now, the other thing that we proclaim is that it is a spiritual and personal consequence. We proclaim that, yes, Jesus died on the cross, but there was also far-reaching spiritual consequences of that action, that God purchased our forgiveness through that sacrifice on the cross. And as John 3.16 tells us, that God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but should have eternal life. And so that's both a proclamation of the spiritual reality, but in you actually taking communion as, a, as an individual, it is a proclamation that that applies to you. That this is my faith, that I believe Jesus did this, I believe that it saves me, and I believe that I've accepted that. And you see, in both of these acts of proclamation, it's, it's about faith. It's a proclamation of faith in God. And you know, somebody said it one way, that salvation is available, it's free, but it's not automatic. You have to accept it in order for it to apply to you. And so the very fact that it's faith which is involved in both of these suggests that there actually can be something accomplished in the spiritual when we take communion. That yes, we believe it's a symbolic action, but yes, God can actually do something real in that moment. Because every time we see God working in the New Testament through faith, there's some physical catalyst that brings that faith from something internal to something external. And I've said this before in our evening services, that the difference between somebody with faith and somebody without faith is absolutely nothing. There is no difference between somebody with faith and somebody without faith until the person with faith actually does something about it, until Peter reaches out his hand to pull up the lame man at the beautiful gates, until the widow with the discharge of blood reaches out to touch the hem of Jesus' garments, until the friends of the paralytic let him down through the roof, until the blind men wash their eyes in the river. There is a physical act that brings that faith which is inside into reality. And so it's absolutely possible and probable and likely, and we should be seeing it, that we can use the act of communion as a way to bring out our faith. And so if you have, are someone who has not known Jesus or the gospel has not quite clicked or made sense to you, 
then the act of communion that we're going to be sharing in a moment can be that proclamation of faith, can be that statement of faith, and can be the moment that you are saved and that you accept Jesus into your life. But it also means that anything which has been purchased by the blood of Jesus can be brought to fruition in that step of faith, whether it be healing, whether it be reconciliation. And there's certainly been people whose ministry experience it is that when they uh, celebrate communion together, God does stuff like that. Healing happens because it's by his stripes that we are healed. And so one of the things that can happen is that this is a physical catalyst for the faith that resides inside you. The other thing that uh, we are told to do is to repeat this practice. That's uh, in Luke's gospel when he says, do this in remembrance of me. He uses the present imperative, which is the Greek way of saying, do this and keep doing it. Uh, and it's confirmed by that First uh, Corinthians verse, as often as you do this. So why do we repeat this practice? Why did Jesus say you need to repeat this? And I think the first thing is that repetition and that proclamation communicates faith. It communicates and dramatizes our faith. And it's very important that the Jewish Passover meal was something that was designed to communicate faith from the older generations to the younger generations. All of this symbolism and this practice was designed to invite questions from the kids who would say, what that's, what's that about? And then the adults would be able to say, this is what God is like. This is what God has done, and to communicate faith. And so we wanna start doing that uh, in our church. And what, we've, uh, got, what we're going to do is we're going to run a communion course. So in the month of July, we're going to have over two weeks after the service, a communion course, which will be just a short half an hour time uh, with uh, kids, and it's gonna be for teens and preteens. And I, I don't wanna put an age uh, on that. I don't wanna say grades, whatever to whatever, because I think it's up to you and, and your children to discern whether they're ready for something like this, and we're not gonna put any restrictions on the age. But it will be over two weeks, a program that's uh, tailored for kids, designed to get them to understand uh, basically the gospel. What is the gospel and what does it mean when we take communion? And now not to leave you, you parents out uh, during that time, at the same time we're going to be running uh, probably in a, in a different space, it really depends on how many people we get. Um, we're gonna, there's a QR code there on the, on the next slide. So if you are interested in, in coming, I'd, I'd love for you to register, that way we know how many people are coming and how many uh, helpers we need and what rooms we need to use for things. And some, some very astute people have already signed up despite the fact that it wasn't on the website until yesterday. Um, but you can, you can just open your phone and camera and, and that'll take you straight to the registration page um, and you can add that. But at the same time, while the kids are having their, uh, their lesson time, their uh, communion course, we're going to be running uh, basically a workshop, conversation, discussion with the parents because we recognize that it's a difficult thing to communicate faith to your kids that to raise them in a world that doesn't know Jesus comes with a lot of problems. And so we've got um, Ian and Janet uh, Renton are going to be running and facilitating that conversation who are a wonderful couple in our church who've been there. They've done the yards, they've seen the good, they've seen the bad, they've seen the ugly, and they're passionate about uh, raising godly kids. And that's not a, a content-based thing, it's not a let's tell you how to parent, it's, it's a facilitated discussion, you know, what's, what's working well, what can we do, how do we actually raise godly kids uh, in this environment. And so we'd love to basically you know, partner with you and help you as parents to be able to do that. That's open to anyone. Okay? You don't even have to be coming to this church uh, to do that. So you can share it with other people if you think that's gonna be relevant. But that'll be, the dates are there on the screen uh, behind <laughs> the QR code. Uh, it's in July, I believe it's the 16th and the 23rd. Now, after that's finished, so it runs for two weeks and then on the 30th, it's a fifth Sunday, which means there's no kids church. 
and the kids are in big church with us. Don't stay home because we are going to, uh, in the moment that we share communion, we're going to celebrate those uh, kids who have the option. It's not going to be, you know, they're not going to be told you have to do it. But if kids want to, then they can have their first communion in church with us and we'll have a special moment of celebrating as a family uh, that proclamation of faith. We don't believe that it's, it's something that is actually a, a, a saving thing, that the practice of taking this is a saving thing, but we, we, we do believe that it's absolutely important to recognise that it symbolises a, a decision of faith uh, that has happened in our kids. So we want to start communicating to our kids what this means. So that's the first thing about uh, repetition. And uh, we're going to, to partake of communion in just a moment, and I'll invite the, the band to start coming up as well. But the second reason I believe that Jesus gave us this instruction to repeat this practice is in order to recenter our faith. Jesus knew that we would need a reminder about what is actually important, that we would spend a lot of our time and energy getting distracted by various things, how hard or how soft the seats in church are, how good or how not good the coffee is, whether we like the music or whether we don't like the music whether we want to spend time with that person or with that person. So Jesus knew that we needed a practice that would recenter us on the gospel, recenter us on his body and his blood and on the sacrifice of the cross. And by the way, if you read all of 1 Corinthians, the problem in the Corinthian church was that they had lost that. They had started focusing on all of these other things, and he's like, you need to come back to communion. You need to come back to the cross, because that is of first importance that's what you need to do. And so this morning, in our response and in as we take communion together, it's going to be a moment for us to recenter, to remind us of what is really important. And so if you, in reflection upon your own life, see and realize that you've gotten off center, off track, whether that's through chasing the... Uh, what the world has to offer through success and, and achievement, or whether it's through pursuing you know, habits of, of sin, or whether it's through disregarding the unity that we have in the body of Christ, then would you recenter this morning? Find yourself back at the cross. Find yourself back at the table of the Lord to recenter on his sacrifice, his death for you. And as a church, we're going through a season, it seems at the moment, of recentering on what's really important to us. Why do we exist here as a church? We've been going for four years and it's time to get on with it. Do we really exist to create the most comfortable upper middle class experience in the suburbs of Brisbane as we can, where the coffee's good, the seats are comfy and the music's pretty good? Is that really why we exist? Or do we exist to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes? to reach the gospel message into the community around us, to share in the bonds of love and unity that we have as the body of Christ. And so as a collective group here today, as we take communion, we're going to recenter. And so the stewards are going to come forward just now. And I'm just going to explain how we're going to do this. Because I, I believe that it's important for us as we come up that we need to examine ourselves as that passage in 1 Corinthians tells us. And so in a moment when I invite you forward to collect the elements, I want you to collect the little cups. 
you know what, I've, I've forgotten to do something that I said I was going to do. Before we get to that moment, um, one of the ways that we're wanting to maybe enhance what we're doing is to go back to the elements the way that we did them before COVID. We've got these very, you know, sanitary um, prepackaged cups, um, but we think perhaps going back to the old way of you know, real juice and, and real bread uh, might be a good way of restoring some of this significance or, or just making it tastier um, rather than cardboard and medicine juice. Um, so I'm going to ask you to participate. By show of hands, who would prefer to go back to the old way of, of doing things? Okay, uh, Tyrone, I think that seems like a majority. Is, is there anyone who would prefer, because we can, we will go with what uh, people would prefer. Anyone prefer the, the little cups or even to, to have them on offer as well, alongside the other elements, because we can do that as well. We'll, we'll do that uh, as well uh, for a time until we run out of the, the stock. We'll see how we go. Okay, that's one of the things, but bring it back. This is a moment where we can uh, recenter ourselves as individuals and as a church. And so as you come forward and you take the elements, I want you to take that cup and I want you to uh, find somewhere, whether that's in your own seat or whether it's anywhere that's out of a walkway, and just take a moment to examine yourself and to reflect. Are you centered on the cross? Is there something in your life that needs to recenter on Jesus? Maybe you've been flippant about your salvation. Maybe there's uh, unaddressed sin in your life that you need the power of God to overcome and the forgiveness of God to, to fill and to energize you. Maybe you've not been mindful of the body. Maybe there's disagreement between parties. Well, God tells us that we need to sort that out. That in order for us to be partaking of the Lord's elements here, then we need to be reconciled to the community around us. And would you do that before receiving the elements? I mean, it's a very serious thing that God says in that passage in 1 Corinthians. Or perhaps you haven't been mindful of the fact that the body of Christ needs you just as much as you need it. That God didn't intend for us to be Christians in isolation, siloed, but that we were to be here in, in community and to contribute and use our gifts. And so if you've been on, on the sidelines and, and not being mindful of the fact that this is a body that runs when every part of it comes together and does its, its bit, then maybe that's your recentering. And so in that moment of reflection, I, I would invite you to take the bread in your own time. That's your personal recentering. That's your personal reflection. And then in a moment after that, uh, we're going to take the juice together and collectively we're going to proclaim our unity and we're going to recenter. And so now's the moment where I'd invite you to, to come forward and to take those elements.
Lord, we are reminded by these elements of the most important act in history. That since the very beginning, you were working towards the moment when a perfect redeemer would die in order to purchase our forgiveness. And we live in the shadow of the cross, in the covering and the blessing that the cross has provided for us. Help us to have that as the centerpiece of our life, knowing that we are heading towards an eternity with you in glory. God, if there's anyone here this morning who needs faith, who needs to offer what little faith they have and needs to trust you for whatever miracle needs to happen in their life, then would you bring that faith out of them this morning and would you come and meet their need by the powerful blood of Jesus? And God, as a community here today, we hold this cup which is your blood that was poured out for us. And God, we have, if we believe in you, we've taken this blood and we've painted it on our door. We're covered. We're safe. Not only that, now that we are reconciled, how much more shall we be saved by you? Shall we be brought into your presence? Shall we have access to your throne room? Not because we deserve it, but because you are good. And so, God, we just proclaim through this cup that you died in our place, that you have ransomed this group of people here and that there are so much more to come. There are so many more who need this cup, who need to experience your salvation. And God, would you help us to recenter as a community on the gospel message, on the cross of Christ and on that uh, mission that you've taken us on. So, God, we take this together as a proclamation of that desire to recenter, as a proclamation of your death. Stay together.